True Tales Live on PPM-TV is made possible through the generous support of Artists Collaborative Theatre of New England, Act One, presenting outstanding performances of Stories with Heart at the West End Studio Theatre in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. For further information, contact 603-300-2986 or on the web at act1nh.org. With additional support from Pat Spaulding, who really wants to know, hey, what's your story? I can't believe I'm 92, and, but I am. And uh, my father said to me, but he says, said, when you're building your life, the most important things are the four L's. And the first L is listening. And that's what we do when you come to, to, to Jonesboro. We listen. We listen. And it's a rare thing these days, listening. Listening to the human voice. Listening to one person talking to another person. Listening. We have forgotten how to listen. How to sit down and talk and have a good time listening. My daddy said, listen. God gave you two ears and one mouth. And he expected you to use them in that proportion. Which is a a good lesson. The first L is listening. And the next L is learning. You have to learn something different all your life. Don't ever quit learning. But listening and learning and laughing is the third L, he said. We've all got to laugh. Laugh at ourselves. Laugh at something every day. The world is a magical, wonderful place, he says. But we need to laugh together. Don't laugh at people, my father said. You laugh with people. And you can never hate anyone you've really laughed with. Laughter binds people together. The most important L is loving. Loving. That God put us here to love each other to enjoy each other, to help each other, to laugh together, to learn together, to listen together, but to love each other. And there's nothing that says I love you more pleasantly and more plainly than storytelling. Everybody here has stories that you need to tell, need to tell to somebody you love. And now is the time to do it. Go home and tell stories and tell each one with love, ending with, I love you. Tucker Windham, who was speaking at the 2010 Alabama Storytelling Festival at 92 years old about the importance of stories. I'm Amy Antonucci, and I'm here to welcome you to True Tales Live, coming to you from Portsmouth Public Media TV, Channel 98, in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thank you to everyone watching and listening, and a special thanks to our studio audience. Welcome yourselves here. We're really glad you came. So, our mission at True Tales Live 
is to provide a space for people to tell their first-person experience stories, stories that reflect our community's personal and cultural diversity, and help us bridge differences and build understanding and respect. While we very much encourage the development of storytelling skills with our monthly workshops and other assistance we give to tellers, this is not a competition. We have no ranking or scoring or voting. Our belief is that stories shared from the heart uplift and inspire us and bind us together, and that's why we're here. So our theme for tonight's show is Then Everything Changed. I think all of us can relate to that moment in your life when the ground beneath your feet shifted. Or maybe it was actually a moment you didn't even notice, but now looking back, you realize, aha, that started something new for me. So we are going to hear stories tonight about those moments in the lives of our six tellers. We have Lori Beth Robbins, Deborah Charbonnet, Charbonnet, did I do okay? Susan Tuvison, Angela Matthews, Andy Davis, and Kate Brown. They each have a 10-minute limit for their story. And David Frainer is tonight's MC. He will be up here to introduce each teller to you before they start. Following the storytelling, we will have an interview of one of the tellers. But first for the stories, and let's welcome up David to introduce the first teller. Lori Beth Robbins is a speaker, former adjunct professor, writer, gourmand, and wine connoisseur. Tonight she shares, she shares her journey that went from being a carefree world traveler to riding a stationary bike, pedaling toward a kind of freedom and wholeness. Ms. Robbins used to live by Winston Churchill's famous dictum, anytime I get the urge to exercise, I go lay down for a while until it passes. <laughs> but she stayed with it, she showed up, she cycled fiercely, and her life did shift from financial to emotional, and even, she says, it shifted geographically because of it. Tonight, she shares her world spin journey with us, her title, A Spinner and Not a Spinstress, How I Reclaimed My Life While in the Dark and on a Bike, Lori Beth Robbins. Thank you very much. I am Lori Beth Robbins, and I appreciate you letting me spin my wheels in the name of how everything changed in my world and just from sauntering up to a stationary bike and embracing what had always been evil to me, that being exercise. Indeed, I have traveled this world to a hefty degree and just gourmeted myself from the tropics to Japan and European and Mediterranean tavernas too. And yet which, with each gigantic bite and zealous, luscious sip of life, I did take with me a misguided language that was not my own, yet I toted it like my luggage. Because you see, I had been bullied brutally throughout my schooling. And because of that, the least of that would be me being the last one when the picking of the teams did roll around with games of slaughter ball in gym class. And this would only prompt me to bring a little note 
to be excused from phys ed every single day for all of my years of school. True story. And so as a result, I avoided sports, I avoided uh, athleticism and physicality, and as a result, I was avoiding things like um, circulation and <laughs> stretching and running, well, unless anything was chasing me. But moreover, I did tell myself that I am not a team player, therefore, and I am not athletic, and I most certainly am not competitive on any level. Well. There is not a more ludicrous trifecta of the proclamation of all of those three things to me now because I joined a place called Cycle Fierce. And I joined, okay, because I liked the name. Yes, somehow with my love of languages and wordplay, I was convinced that maybe with their nod toward fierceness in their business moniker, that it would summon from within my inner... Tyrannosaurus Rex or whatever need be to propel me into fantastic physical shape. And yet within my first days even of the spinning experience, I was doing absolutely everything wrong. I didn't even know what to eat before a spin class would a porterhouse steak be good. And uh, I had nothing to wear to an exercise studio of all places. Let's not forget that thigh-high leather boots are de rigueur to me. And uh, what if I needed to use the lavatory and uh, fiercely, so to speak, mid-ride? Oh, from all of the questions spinning in my mind, I did show up nonetheless and to a dark room. And the music was loud. And I loved that. You see, nobody could fixate on anybody else because we had to hold on and balance ourselves and let our heart rates accelerate without, oh, going into cardiac arrest. And for some of us, mind you, that does take a keen focus. And there was coordination, lots of it. And just when I would arrive to class, people were already racing atop their bikes and doing some kind of a warm-up. And meanwhile, I was over here... Um, sipping my water already, and just convinced that if I pedaled at all, that I would use up absolutely everything that I had and seven minutes before the class did even begin. Oh, and uh, I dumped a bike. Yes, I did. And uh, I wasn't even on it, mind you, which when you think about it, that truly takes bionic skill. Yes, I was standing next to it uh, doing the stretch session that we do after each course, and I was gripping on with such white-knuckle epic fear as if parachuting out of an airplane. And as a result, I did manage to pull that piece of machinery with me right onto the floor. Oh, I was the class clown, and epically so on every level. And uh, oh, least I forget, I uh, was unable to clip in. You see, there are little clips on the bottom of the sneakers or the spinning shoes, which allow one to fasten securely atop the pedals and be mounted instead of stuffing your foot into a harnessed uh, piece. And for the love of God, I could not clasp and fasten no matter how I kicked or tried with all my might and flight. I, and my instructor took off my shoes in front of the class and fastened the shoes into the bike, at which point I would get back on and put, oh yeah, let me tell you, this was about the equivalent of me cutting a grown man's steak when out to dinner. I was awkward, I was clumsy, I was nervous, I was tired, and I barely could rise when we had to stand on the bike, let alone stand up and run. I just wanted to ask for a pair of training wheels, despite my age being 47 and not four or seven. And that toned and taut physical veneer did not just magically appear. Because apparently and quite obviously, my mind 
and my body too would need to adjust to some other things first, like uh, movement even and sweating. I mean, just the fact that I would show up at a gathering like that and remember to wear pants even uh, and try my darndest not to rip them was no mean feat, let alone be standing in this dark chamber fabulously pounding music in tandem with this strong guttural bellowing of these chants coming from a trainer over a microphone and with quips like, booty back in that saddle. (laughs) And we rise like the sun did serve as the surge that I needed motivation-wise to catapult me forward and make sure that I didn't quit and that I would stick with it. And I am so glad that I did because exercising at home for me was not going to happen because I am a social creature innately and I become energized when I interact with other people. And that light went off resoundingly for me up on the bike too in the name of career because to continue to sit home hiding and negating a lot of my talents and God-given strengths was not serving me well. And it became clear that from finances to fitness to the freedom to lucidly march forth as my most authentic and strongest self, I would have to get out of the house and onto a stage or a television set or a movie screen or, yes, even a cycling chamber, anywhere where I could share my undeniable, galvanizing and innate and lucid and genuine warmth and energy with others. And all of these things were happening in tandem, and I was suddenly realizing that uh, everything was such a new experience And that people, I even learned that I was loving speed. I was loving speed. And I was loving it so much that I even wondered, and to this day, if sometimes I would pedal that stationary bike right out of the door and onto the street because of all of the illuminating and galvanizing and magnetizing and magnanimous epiphanies that were popping off left and right in my heart, soul, and might and from my core, and emanating through every pore, yes. And that everyone who uh, showed up at that 6 a.m. spinning class, which is always sold out, and with a waiting list, by the way, yes, at 6 in the morning, they were all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and sans any moans or groans that, oh, it's just too early for anything in life. And that did tell me that I had found my tribe. And four months later, when I glanced to my right and I witnessed a young, beautiful woman who needed assistance clipping in of all familiar things, and I was now in a position to confidently, albeit humbly and empathetically and graciously, help her. And in a nanosecond, yes, it was one of these in a heartbeat, it dawned on me And it resonated deep down in my being and more so than any of my travel around this big, beautiful world from the tremendous trips to the torturous ones and back again. Yes, a simple, random, kind gesture and act with a physical, tangible moment in time from up upon the bike did finally get me to grasp at nearly 48 years old now that all of our cycling and spinning and racing and climbing that all of us do in this big, beautiful world, albeit from a broken-seeming place as we fumble 
and we mumble and we spin our, meal, our wheels and we try to find our way, does eventually, when it is supposed to, become cyclical and come back full throttle and full circle and present with it a choice and an opportunity for us to pick up our pain from our past and put it into place to heal and to become whole and to click into gear and to click into position a couple turns to the right place in time where we can help ourselves and thus pay it forward and help somebody else. So much was coming to me and just from cycling lessons. And it was under the tutelage of the most magnificently inspiring instructor who is one of the warmest and most inspiring human beings I have met anywhere on the globe, bar none as well, which uh, is a testament to uh, her doing what she came into this lifetime to do and for such how very grateful am I. It was under her tutelage and also the shared energy where I realized in the room with the cyclists in tandem that I am supported through them too with the shared energy and their shared stories as they cycle and their shared stamina and their shared sweat and their shared strength. And I would even, every time I was in one of this woman's class, I would, I would even see that well-circulated on social media quip, uh, slay your own dragons, princess. And so I did. And now as we move forth in the new prosperous year of 2018, I am, alas, sharing my exuberant passions and talents and gifts of gab, if you will, full-time with the masses in the name of entertaining and enchanting and educating and ensorceling. And as you leave now, I invite and encourage you to pedal forth and share your God-given, remarkable, irreverent gifts with the world too while you are still here. Because when you think about it, why it's just like riding a bike. I'm Lori Beth Robbins, and tonight I thank you very much. Deborah Chabarnier was born in Brighton, Massachusetts, and currently lives in Kittery, Maine, with her husband and daughter. She keeps busy with her window cleaning business called Bright and Shiny Window Washing. Tonight, we'll hear from Deborah as she shares with us her true tale live, which she describes as a fast-moving drama. Her story's title, Confusion Compounded. Deborah. Confusion compounded. I drew this simple sketch and got it tattooed on my right shoulder blade when I was 16. It's not very pretty. For those who can't see it, a ghost with sad expression and chains hanging from the withered limbs. Now, my childhood was awesome. In those days, my name was Debbie Karchinas. My sister Kim and I did a lot of figure skating in the Boston Mass area. I won the gold medal in the Junior New England Championships in 1978 and 79. My family was living the good life. We enjoyed a summer cottage in Agunquit, Maine, on the banks of the Agunquit River. As you looked from the cottage across the river, there was a large expanse of sand dunes at points 50 feet high, with a sandy path that ran over it, 
On the other side of the dunes was the Atlantic Ocean and miles of white sandy beaches. Days at the beach beside my brother Kenny were the best. We were close companions, I being one year and one month older than him. At low tide, we would explore the river together with our buckets collecting crabs and snails. On the ocean side, we didn't care how cold the water was. We spent hours riding the waves. Well, bad things happened to my brother. Once we were fishing at the mouth of the river, Kenny was to my left. When he cast out something went haywire, his fishing lure snapped back and gouged into his neck, close to the jugular vein. When those hooks tore his flesh, he went, ah! He was taken to York Hospital and patched up. Oh, I grieved, and I worried. Once, Dad took Kim and I to the cottage, while Mom and Kenny stayed home. My dad's name was John, but he had a creative inner self named Jackie. After this weekend, talk spread through the campground of a person seen at the cottage that looked like Madonna in her superstar days. That was my dad. I played pickup jacks in the kitchen when he was in that outfit. Blonde wig, extra long red fingernails, and jewelry on his man hands. Shortly after this, Mom filed for divorce and moved us kids out of the family house in Waltham. It was about two weeks after this move when everything changed. Bad things happened to my brother. He went missing one day. Kenny went missing. He was 10, my sister 13. She was in the front seat when Mom drove to the bank in Watertown and told us to stay in the car. Well, after a bit, Kenny opened the car door and got out. He had been in the back with me. No, no. Without him telling us, he walked up to my dad's business to skip away. The name of the business, Watertown Wire, a wire and metal manufacturing shop. My dad's dad got it started and over many years had built it up. Grandpa had passed on and dad worked there now alongside my, his sister's uncle, his, his sister's husband, my uncle. Well, the banking took longer than expected. Once back in the car, mom asked, where's Kenny? We were up to the shop in a snap, expecting to see Kenny there. First thing Dad says is, where's Kenny? My mom's in a panic. What do you mean, where's Kenny? What do you mean? Isn't he up here with you? Didn't he walk up here? I was at the bank. Didn't he walk up here? Don't do this to me, John. Don't do this. My sister and I remained silent, listening to our dad make claims. He hadn't seen Kenny. My dad kept that lie going for close to one year. A police investigation was open, but there was no evidence. I felt awful. I'd let Kenny slip away, but Mum felt right from the start there was foul play by my dad and told me his disappearance wasn't my fault. Kim and I stopped ice skating, and we're placed in a foster home. Confusion. I grieve, and I worry. Well, my dad stayed living in Waltham and working at the shop. About ten months later, the private investigators tell Mom, Kenny is back at the house in Waltham. So the police get a writ and retrieve him. But Dad resisted and gave a loaded gun to my brother, telling him to shoot at the police and then to kill himself if the police entered the bedroom. Now, no shots were fired. But after this, my brother is placed in a group home. He stays there about a year and a few months. He's given psychological care. When missing, he was called Chip, and he would keep that name going forward. I was told not to ask him where he had been. All my mom learns is somewhere in northern Maine. 
full disclosure, never forthcoming. Now, while missing, my brother was treated well, but he was manipulated by my dad. He was lovingly lied to by my dad and whomever else my dad used and paid off. The truth is, Kenny's disappearance was a smokescreen. It gave my dad a pocket of time to move as much money as he could out of Massachusetts and away from the reach of the divorce court lawyers. Watertown Wire was disbanded. The inventory, the machines, the contracts were sold to a business competitor. The employees terminated, including my uncle, three kids, and one on the way. What remained was a lease agreement for another company to rent space at the warehouse. Now, these types of business moves reduced the financial size of the child support package. My mom would get whatever those numbers were. Later, my mother learned Dad also owned a house in Belmont she never knew about. From there, Dad could make calls to Maine without the police knowing. Well, back at the group home, I'm able to visit my brother on occasion as the social workers schedule. Now, in 1982, Mom is allowed to take Chip up to the campground in a gunkwit for the afternoon. Now, Dad was not invited to this visit. There was a restraining order on him. But Dad drove through the campground, was able to get Chip in the car, and he drove out. The police were contacted, and they retrieved my brother about two hours later up in Gorham, Maine, off Route 202. They bring my brother back to the group home. Confusion. I grieve, and I worry. Finally, the divorce is wrapped up. Mom relocates to Dedham, Mass. with Kim and me. Understand, Dad never had child abduction charges brought on, but he does have to clear up other charges, so he pays fines, and he does about six months in jail. I hadn't seen him in about two years by then. When Dad gets out, he heads up north where the money is and buys a log cabin on a small farm near Stratton, Maine. Now, that's a five-hour drive north of Dedham in the Western Mountains. My mom is granted court-ordered custody of Chip. So Chip leaves the group home, and for several months, he's living in Dedham. I'm glad to have him home again. We're going to school, riding bikes in the neighborhood. Well, this is back when us kids didn't wear helmets. One day, Chip fell off his skateboard and got a really bad head concussion. He spends three nights at Norwood Hospital recovering. Oh, I grieve, and I worry. It was only a few months after this accident when everything changed. Chip was about 13 at this time, and I would soon start freshman year in high school. I was home in Dedham, in my bedroom near the window on a Saturday morning. Kim was out, Mom and Chip doing something downstairs. I saw a black car pull up. It parks in front of the house, but behind a big hedge, so I couldn't see anybody. Chip left the house. He got in the car, drove away. I was puzzled, so I walked down the hall and see Mom coming up from the doorway. I ask, what just happened? Your father kept badgering me for custody, so I let him go. Confusion compounded. My mother relinquished custody in a private deal outside of the courts, and I wasn't told about this in advance or offered a chance to say goodbye to my brother. The next time I see Chip, I'm a junior in high school. Now, Chip agreed to move north, but he was going to do what Daddy wanted. After he left Dedham, information about him was sparse. 
At this time, I got the tattoo of the ghost on my shoulder. There was friction between mom and me because she wasn't helping to set up times for me to visit my brother. Through high school years, I worked part-time. On top of after-school athletics, come senior year, I bought myself a used car. I knew I wasn't supposed to buy a car. I had been parking it at a neighbor's house for a few days, but I had left newspaper classified ads hanging out in the TV room, so Mom approached me. I know you bought a used car. You know you weren't supposed to buy a car. You broke house rules again. You know what that means. You're going to have to move out. Just make sure you finish high school and see this counselor once a month. Well, I found a room to rent in the next town over, but I finished senior year at Dedham High, class of 87. I didn't attend graduation ceremonies. As soon as the last final exam was over, I left town. I went up to see my brother. Chip and I went to Flagstaff Lake swimming with friends. That's in Stratton, Maine. I hadn't been there before. All around this small lake is views of the mountains. Chip was standing to my left as we were on the bridge overlooking the water and out to the view of the Bigelow mountain range. Well, one of his friends says, Oh, what's that, a tattoo? (laughs) What is that, Casper the Friendly Ghost? (laughs) Well, Chip took a close look at that tattoo. He didn't say a word. He slowly nodded his head up and down, and he looked out over the mountainside. He nodded slowly and looked over at me. All I could do was shrug. Chip stepped back from the railing and said, That's my sister. Don't laugh at, his, don't laugh at her tattoo. I only stayed up there three days. I was a fool not to have stayed longer, but Dad didn't have the welcome mat out. However, the following spring... I was living up in Stratton. But not under the same roof as my brother. I hardly saw him. I was working nights, and he was going to school during the day. Now, he graduated from Mount Abram that spring, and I went to his high school graduation commencement ceremonies. I was the only family member there for him. Well, Dad had... My brother had enough of Dad by then. So two days after graduation... He left town. We never said goodbye to each other. My brother Chip did well for himself, though. He got a good job working construction with a crew that went around the country. He was living in Washington State, down in Georgia, then out in California for a while. After high school, Dad and I were the only family members to see Chip a few times. I heard Mom saw him once for a quick visit. I didn't understand this. Yeah, I saw Chip, but these were not regularly shared holidays or time to talk and catch up to one, with one another. I really only had glimpses of Chip, very brief, random moments, like a leaf blowing in the wind. I was in my early 20s when Dad told me vaguely, Chip showed signs of seizure disorder in his late high school years. Oh, I grieve, I worry, I wonder, how is my brother doing Who was I to him? Why was he a thousand miles from nowhere? Well, Chip was his own man by then, and swimming against the current was nothing new to him. I was living in Beverly, Mass, when my dad telephoned and told me Chip had died. 
He was 25 years old. On May 9th, 1997, Chip was with friends out in Carlsbad Beach, California. He had a seizure while he was surfing and he drowned. Confusion. Two months after Chip's death, I moved back to Stratton, Maine. I remember being at Flagstaff Lake, at the scenic viewing area to the left of the bridge where Chip and I went swimming. The view of the Bigelow Mountains was at its finest, but I saw something and it spoke to me. The color of the standing evergreen trees was in sharp contrast to a large area of a land. I guess a mudslide had occurred. Many trees and land had been shifted in such a way, leaving a different color in those areas. The image left on the side of the mountain was in the shape of the ghost tattoo on my shoulder. I grieved and I wondered. Thank you. Very nicely done. <clears throat> Susan Tuveson came to the seacoast 20 years ago, a happy destination after traveling a long road. After ditching the practice of law, she opened a small artisanal chocolate store in Kittery, Maine. It ran to good reviews for nine years. During that time, she also produced a few good food and classical music shows on Portsmouth Community Radio. These days, Susan runs a food business incubator kitchen, advising clients on state and federal production regulations and rules. And when Susan's not home, she's in France. Speaking about her story, Susan asks, what do we do when the road you're on becomes impassable? And her response, watch for a sign, and when you find it, follow it. Her title, Roadblocks and Reversals. When the going gets tough, cross your fingers and go to the airport. Susan. In the late summer of 1973, I was 17 and off to college in western Pennsylvania. Go far, my dad advised. A good distance from my very irritated mother, who was already tiring of children, and there were three behind me. I had no idea what I was to do in college. Somehow, I was randomly selected for an experimental freshman program, unstructured, open to any structure I would impose on myself. I gamely fumbled with physics, never having even had a science course in high school. You could get away with that then. Chinese literature and translation and some other odd subjects I can't recall. They even let me teach others because at that point I was a fairly decent flutist and there were colleagues who wanted to learn. 
My profs were patient enough, but it turned out to be a bust for an untamed freshman with no study skills, set truly loose for the first time in her life. Year two, I opted for a real class schedule, taking up where I left off in high school. French, Russian, linguistics, the odd music class. The social life was fun enough. One night, I was nearly arrested for streaking, done on a dare. I loved a party, but not to the extent that drugs or alcohol took control of my decisions, even though it was the 70s. I hadn't even the temerity for that. In the matters of the heart department, I did little better. The world-class swimmer scientist I became engaged to left me for the Mormon church. I became engaged uh, then again to the jazz pianist orchestra conductor student, a nice guy, stable, had direction, and he loved me. But I was numb, stuck in that bind of not being happy unless I was in a relationship and never going to be in a good relationship until I was happy. Meanwhile, in year three, the thought occurred to me that I might make a decent Russian teacher, so I approached the School of Education for some career direction. Laughed out due to middling grades, I was stumped. Roadblock. So instead of redirect, I hit reset. The jazz pianist and I packed up and went to a state university near DC. Large, pan-academic, I transferred easily, but with significant loss of credits due to that experimental freshman year. Okay, a setback, but not serious. What is it they say about the definition of crazy? <laughs> Back into Russian, adding Italian to my workable French, and declaring a major, an ambitious dual foreign language music major, as proof of my, as of as proof of the measure of my resolve, the jazz pianist and I split, and I left him to travel his own isolated dirt road alone. I surrender is what I should have declared. I still had no durable study skills or a sense of working towards something which results in going nowhere. Replay, tumbling grades, fading interests. Now another boyfriend did distract me, this time a blue-blooded rare-do-well with three names and a Roman numeral. <laughs> Doing the same thing over and over and expecting the same results. Frustrated, I retreated and took to hiding. Now this is the nerd part. In the Library of Congress, in the rare manuscript music room with white gloves, or at the Folger where the whole charming place paused for tea every afternoon. Oh. Profs don't like when you skip class, and they made that clear to the registrar. By spring semester of my third year, it was clear I had to bug out of school number two before the office was on my tail for termination. Roadblock, perhaps, but closer to six years stuck on a Jersey traffic circle. School on hold and finances depleted, I signed up with a temp agency and was placed in the Human Resources Department of a Washington, D.C. think tank. On weekends, I boarded Amtrak for Princeton, New Jersey, where my father was living, and took a job as a copywriter of a photo caption, uh, for photo captions for a publisher putting out a book of lists. <laughs> lists of events, festivals, and fairs all over the country. For example, Anyone can enter a worm in the Podunk USA worm races. And there was a picture. Well, the travel made me feel like I was doing something worthwhile, but I was really running in place. The stasis, though pleasant enough, 
required very little for me. I was 24 and stuck on spin. It seemed all I knew were roadblocks, failure, and startovers, high walls of my own construction. I couldn't see over them, and it never occurred to me to consider these as opportunities, especially when combined with powers and talents I had but had no understanding of. A few months later, Providence appeared in the form of a small notice affixed to a tree on Princeton's campus. English teachers needed in Japan, call Norman. This is a great opportunity. Hmm. I called Norman, interviewed, and six weeks later, in the full flower of June, I was on a flight. And then everything changed. People say you can't run away from your problems, but I say there's nothing wrong with exchanging the old ones for new challenges. They also say wherever you go, there you are. It's been 37 years since that June, and Japan is now as comforting and familiar to me as my kittery home. But these are the first things I saw, and these and many more to come took me from no, I can't, to yes, I can. The first uh uh-oh moment came to me on the approach to the Tokyo airport, and I'm looking down at miniature vehicles traveling on the wrong side of the road. The flight crew were speaking in what sounded like backwards Italian. Once out of the plane, blasted by Japan's heat in the jetway, through customs and stupid groggy from 18 hours of travel, I was met by the man who interviewed me in New York. We got on a train for Osaka, barreling along in a pressurized can, faster than I thought possible on land. And this was in the old days when the bullet went 150. Slowly it came to me that I understood nothing I heard, nothing I saw, nothing I tried to read. Chinese characters and whole other groups of symbols everywhere. Occasionally something written in Roman letters, Japanese words in English, Uh, I was tempted to rationalize that, but of course it's not true. It was just in Roman letters. There were loudspeakers everywhere, volume on 11. Advertisements, come-ons, restaurateurs shouting greetings. The noise level was overwhelming. Flags, pennants, banners, plastic flowers hanging from the light poles competed with the noise for my attention, and lots of things were pink. (laughs) I was a five-foot-four Gulliver Gulliver in a Lilliputian land. Mm -hmm. Most men were about my height, the women, half the size, all furniture, tables, doorways, stairways, all scaled down. What I'd seen from the plane was even more terrifying on the ground. To cross the street, first look right, and then left, or die. The cars on the streets were all new, not a dent or patch of rust to be seen. Taxis were immaculate, cars, buses, trucks, and all these cars, buses, and trucks drivers wore white gloves. From the street, the country smelled like food and sewer, yet everywhere was clean, yet every man smoked. Sidewalks were mobbed, with mostly men dressed the same, dark blue trousers, white short sleeve shirts, the fewer women in summer weight dresses, plus stockings and heels in the Asian heat. More than a few ladies in kimono, 
kids in dark blue school uniforms, a takeoff on the traditional sailor suit. The design I learned later is nearly unchanged from the time Admiral Perry sailed into Tokyo Bay in the late 19th century. Foot traffic kept left, that is except for the bicycles, that uh, let loose angry, piercing, rusty brake squeals to warn you out of their way. Within a week, I was housed in a neat fifth floor walk-up Japanese-style apartment with tatami floors, sliding paper doors, and a deep, deep bathtub for soaking. I learned to negotiate the train system. I started work, and with that, the activities were full on. My curiosity arose like Lazarus from the dead. I wanted to know, do, and go everywhere in this confusing, provocative place. In order to navigate Japan's cultural and physical byways, I knew I had to learn the language. So I dived in and ran into more roadblocks and reversals than I thought possible. Because when everything changes, it also kind of doesn't. And you are still you wherever you go. And you still have to get it done. And if the planets are aligned, you are still being rewarded in ways you never dreamed. And thus, my real life began. The many particulars are subjects for other tales, but the lasting effects on my life and efforts and each lesson learned became part of who I am now with self-knowledge tools to confront a fully lived, fully loved life. Many good things and some sad still come my way as a result of that time. But for these, I am grateful. Thank you. Angela Matthews has been living in New Hampshire since the early 70s when she took a job as a teacher in the Portsmouth school system. She's living in Rollinsford right now, but she notes she seems to spend a lot of time coming to Portsmouth. For six years, she worked <coughs> for the Star Island Corporation. She retired in December of 2014. And she says she now spends a lot of time gardening in season or shoveling snow in that other season. Her story is about estrangement and reunion and some magic miracles here and there. Her title, Dear Child of Mine, Angela. It was a full year and nine months since the last time I saw her. That day when she piled her belongings into the back of a truck, large black plastic bags holding whatever remained of her constantly transitioning life. The driver of the truck had proven unworthy of my respect and in my opinion, unworthy of her friendship. It was a moment reminiscent of when she came to live in our home. A tiny waif of a foster child, 
barely six years old and clutching another black plastic bag filled with clothes, a stuffed animal, some shoes, little assorted treasures. How many times before had that bag been moved to a temporary home? As I glanced out my kitchen window toward the garage, I wondered how many times more would she repeat this cycle before it was a worn out pattern that could be left behind? Dear child of mine, you are a constant reminder of my own foibles and inner demons. You test my tensile strength in many and varied ways that I tested my own parents. One remarkable chapter of my youth is in my early 20s. I seem to be working out one thread of my incompleteness through a series of car accidents. A fender bender here, running into a ditch there, nothing resulting in serious injury. But there was one brush with catastrophe that completely changed my driving habits. It was 1970 and I was living in Boston in an apartment on Peterborough Street, third floor with an elevator that scared me. So I always took the stairs. It was one of those antique iron-gated elevators that rose on cables inside the stairwell. You called the elevator and it would stop. You had to open the door yourself, step in, close the door yourself. I always felt I lacked the skills to be the elevator operator. <laughs> but strangely, I did not feel the same anxiety behind the wheel of a car. My questionable reputation, questionable reputation, deserved or not, grew within my family. I was very close to my uncle, my father's brother, John. He never dished my reputation at me, so I liked spending time with him. I invited him to check out my new place, shared with my best friend, Linda, and then he could take us out to dinner. He came with a bottle of wine that we shared before going to a favorite restaurant in the North End. We set out in high spirits, my car buzzing with story and laughter. Then on Storrow Drive at about 7 p.m., all of that changed. My car hopped across the median strip, one of the few spots on Storrow Drive where there were no concrete barriers or fencing. The car careened across three lanes of oncoming traffic. We landed in the soft shoulder on the westbound side of the highway. Not a single hair out of place and no disruption to the natural flow of unwitting evening travelers. In minutes, a police cruiser arrived and the officer began asking questions to which I provided honest answers. The lawyer my father hired offered that perhaps in the future, in similar circumstances, 
I needn't be a Girl Scout and instead withhold incriminating information. (laughs) He also suggested more appropriate clothing. He said, you know, he's counting a judgmental glance at my jeans, my boots, and my provocative shirt. A few years ago at a family party, my brother reminisced about that accident some 40 years earlier and how lucky we all were to have survived the snapping of a tie rod that rendered my steering wheel useless. First, I do not consider it like luck that there were no injuries. I consider it a moment of grace. Something was at work in the universe that protected us all that night. Second, what broken tie rod? Why didn't I ever know about this? No one ever told me. Well, the answer to that is perhaps because my father worried that if I knew that detail, my driving habits wouldn't change. And probably, in his opinion, my recklessness would not change. There is nothing that more quickly bursts the balloon of a parent's outrage and indignation than a memory of one's own youthful indiscretion. There is nothing more motivating to be a loving parent than the experience of having been a loved child. Yet, here I was, throwing my child out of my home for the second time. The first, when she turned 21, and now, as she turned 30. As the days and months passed, it took a while for my own depression and anger to fall away to some level of healing. And then it took a while more for me to genuinely miss her, long to see her, and want her to be home for the holidays. Then it happened. On November 12th each year, my friend Terry, one of my childhood friends, posts a birthday remembrance on her Facebook page for my high school sweetheart, Joe. He died in Vietnam in 1968. Along with the tribute this past November, she posted a picture of Joe and I together. I went to post my thumbs up and a comment. And there was this message that took my breath away. It was from my daughter. Now remember, she has never met my friend Terry, who lives in North Carolina. They are not friends on on, uh, Facebook. For me, it was Joe's abundant life force that brought us together and opened a pathway to this Christmas reunion. He was at the center of this miracle, this moment of grace in virtual reality. And we were suddenly, after 21 months of growing sadness and silence, reconnected to each other. If there is one thing that experiences like this have taught me, it is that there are bigger things that work in the universe than I can possibly understand or imagine. There are life forces too great to be extinguished and spirits that linger in our hearts long after a death. 
And there are moments of crisis when grace enters and shakes one's beliefs and attitudes to the core. Which pothole jolts someone out of a rut? Which trigger ignites desire to end a comfortable, well-worn, and no longer useful or healthy pattern? It was a snap Tyron on Starrow Drive in 1970 that hurled me out of my recklessness. For my daughter, well, she's still a work in progress, navigating those ruts and jolts with determined passion. Only she will know the moment when everything changes. Only she will hit the pothole that hurls her forever out of a rut. And in that moment, I imagine that she will discover a newfound self and the inner resources to become all that she was born to be. Thank you. Andy Davis was bit by the story-telling bug 25 years ago when he told comic tales by candlelight in Mexican refugee camps. He's since broadened and refined his craft and has entertained audiences as far east as Paris, as far south as Bamako, and as far west as San Diego. His day job is co-director of the World Fellowship Center, an educational and family retreat center <coughs> near Conway, in the White Mountains. The center's focus is on peace and social justice. Almost 30 years ago, during the Civil War in El Salvador, Andy had an experience that changed him forever. His story is titled, Surfing in La Libertad. Andy. Early in the morning, about two years ago, I was driving my teenage daughter to Concord for a legislative internship program. Just a little bit before 8 o'clock, we pulled up in front of Bagel Works, and Fiona went inside to order and to get us a table while I went to the parking kiosk. And when I got my receipt, I saw the date on it, March 24th the date that Oscar Romero had been assassinated. So when I got inside, I asked Fiona if I had ever told her about Archbishop Romero of El Salvador. She didn't think so. So I told her of how he had been a conservative priest on the side of the oligarchy, and not long after he became archbishop in 1977, the murder of a priest friend who had been on the side of the poor turned his world upside down. And he said, when I saw Rutilio lying there dead, I thought if they could kill him for what he had done, I had to follow the same path. So for the next three years, he did. He redeemed himself by turning the church into an agent of justice. He denounced the military over the airwaves. He, he said, in the name of God, stop the repression. 
and I told Fiona how he was shot down while saying Mass on this day in 1980. And in that tiny country, 250,000 attended his funeral. Fiona paused for a moment after I finished, and then she said, Daddy, what made you the way you are? I mean, I know you did human rights work in Guatemala, and that's where you met, met Mommy, and, but was there any one thing that changed you? So I told her this story. One April afternoon, I was standing on a dusty roadside south of Acapulco with my pack on my back, sweat in my eyes, and my thumb outstretched. It was in 1989, and I was on my way to see a friend who was working for a labor union in El Salvador. Finally, a car stopped, a lime green pickup with a cap on the back and surfboards in the, on the roof. Uh, behind the wheel were Gabe and in the passenger seat, Steve. They were two guys about my age from Southern California, and they were following the Pacific coast, hitting all the surfing hotspots from Baja to Costa Rica. So as we drove south under that big, washed-out Mexican sky, we talked and talked and got to know each other pretty well in a short time, the way you sometimes do when you travel. And they waxed eloquent about the magic of surfing and their attraction for it. And I ranted about the U.S. role in the world and about how our government was spending a million dollars a day in a country the size of Massachusetts to kill nuns and peasants. Steve was just a little bit older than me, if at all, but he adopted the patronizing tone of an older brother who wanted to save me from making the same mistakes he had made. When I uttered one more pat phrase about how really we're all connected, he started shaking his head and said, man, when I'm on my board paddling out towards sea, that's when I feel connected. Don't waste your time with politics, Andy. Nothing ever changes. Well, we were together for three days. They took me all the way to La Libertad, which was an expatriate surfer hangout within an hour of my destination, San Salvador. Picture this a whole village of shaggy bronze surfers living in their version of paradise while every morning on roadsides in all the countryside around, tortured bodies are turning up. But it had the best right-hand point break this side of Hawaii. So the next morning, I went to Punta Roca to watch Gabe and Steve do their thing. I watched how they balanced expertly on their boards, carefully staying above the turmoil. And I could see the attraction. But I had a bus to catch to the capital. The headquarters of Finastras, the National Federation of Salvadoran Workers, was on a quiet side street in the capital in an old concrete block warehouse building. You entered through a big black 
metal garage door. And right behind the door, there were two women who were always making pupusas to feed to the workers who came and went all day to eat and talk politics. The place was a hive of activity because it was right before May Day when there was to be a big march to challenge the regime. And since Fenostris had the biggest headquarters of any of the movement organizations, the place was filled with people from women's groups and student groups and other labor unions that were spray-painting acronyms and slogans in big red and black block letters on repurposed sheets. Well, the march was a success. We were a sea of people washing past the government troops that lined the routes, brandishing their M16s. The banners were beautiful, and nobody got shot. When I got back to the States, I settled down and was working at the Gap Mountain Bakery in Troy, New Hampshire, where I could be with Anne, my baker, juggler, massage therapist, girlfriend, a good combination if you can find it. And I would spend two or three nights a week at her place, and then the other nights I uh, camped in the Mountain View Cemetery looking out at Mount Monadnock with the Congdens on one side and the Jarvises on the other. Good neighbors. <laughs> Life was good, and the war in El Salvador felt far away. One afternoon, Anne and I closed up the bakery and went next door to pick up a couple of things at the grocery before going up the hill to her house. She went to the back cooler to get a jug of milk, and I scanned the headlines on the Boston Globe, and one on page six stopped me cold. Ten die in Salvadoran labor union bombing. With my heart in my throat, I looked further. It was Finastris. The bomb was placed in a burlap sack right outside that metal door so that When it exploded, it turned the whole door to shrapnel. One of my new friends was scalped, but lived. But the men on either side of him were decapitated. Anne got back from the cooler. She saw the look on my face. She set down the milk, and she gathered me into her arms. And I fell headlong into a sea of human sorrow. I had barely known existed. Well, when I finished, Fiona didn't know what to say. But the truth is, she didn't need to say anything because she had the last word. She was the last word. Because ten, uh, a week short of 10 years after the Finastris bombing, Fiona was born in the apartment Andrea and I were renting in Keene. And my heart busted open again. And as I sat holding my newborn daughter, I was awash in the fathomless love that most new parents feel. But I also felt a new stake in things. I felt connected to pain and heartbreak in a way I never had before. I felt a new connection to that 
sea of human sorrow and a new solidarity with anyone who's ever felt unimaginable loss. That's a hard feeling to stay submerged in all the time, but on my best days, I get a splash of it. Sometimes all it takes is the date on a parking receipt. While Kate Braun grew up in the Midwest, she has lived in New England for the past 20 years, and she has taught acting classes at a community college in Boston for the last 15. Trained as an actor, she's worked with local theater companies, including <clears throat> Threshold Stage, Act One, New Hampshire Theater Project, the Seacoast Rep, and York Readers Theater. Growing up in the Midwest, Kate was raised to be a good Catholic girl, but then everything changed when out of the blue she met the love of her life and was suddenly faced with the prospect of marrying outside of the Catholic Church. If you grew up Catholic, as my wife did, <clears throat> or know someone who did grow up Catholic, you're likely to resonate with Kate's story, a good Catholic girl. Yes, I was born in the Midwest and raised to be a good Catholic girl. I grew up with two brothers and a sister, and our parents gave us a very strong Catholic upbringing. We attended Catholic grade school where we learned our catechism and uh, mom was actually the school secretary. We attended mass on Sundays and holy days and my dad even took, took it one step further by attending mass every weekday morning before going to work. There was a crucifix hanging on our wall in the hallway and I remember on Sunday nights, we'd kneel down as a family uh, and pray the rosary together. Of course, we had fish on Fridays, usually alternating between tuna casserole and the church fish fry. <laughs> uh, my sister and I were both given the name, middle name of Mary. Uh, and after my confirmation in uh, fourth grade, I could always tell when mom was losing her patience with me because I'd get the full name, Catherine Mary Margaret. In the fourth and fifth grade, if you had asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have said I want to be a nun. I just thought the nuns had so much fun. You know, they, they <laughs> I could envision them going off to the convent after a day of teaching uh, where they ate together and uh, cooked together and prayed together and sang together and just seemed like one eternal slumber party to me. <laughs> I went to a Catholic summer camp uh, where we had sunrise services and uh, sang Morning Has Broken to 
a guitar accompaniment. <laughs> and though I attended public high school, I uh, was involved in the Catholic Youth Organization. I was even the editor of the CYO newsletter. I attended retreats with CYO, uh, where we joined hands in a circle and sang, let there be peace on earth, to a guitar accompaniment. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout my 20s, I continued to go to church on Sundays. I, uh, I was living away from home uh, at this time, and I usually went to cathedrals or basilicas just for their sheer magnificent. Uh, I loved being part of something greater than myself. I, I loved the transcendent uh, feeling of being there. Of course, the subject of boys uh, came up um, several times. I remember when I was in high school uh, and my mom told someone that I didn't seem much interested in boys. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm not. That was news to me. <laughs> but mom was uh, more intuitive than I guess I realized because throughout high school, college, well into my 20s, I, I just really didn't focus that much on dating. I think Billy Joel said it best when he said, you Catholic girls start way too late. <laughs> I, was, I was well into my 30s before I met the love of my life. I fell madly in love. Unfortunately, uh, he was not the man that mom would have picked out for me. Not only was he a non-Catholic, but he was substantially older and he was not just once, but twice divorced. Still, love is blind, and I fell madly in love. Of course, getting married in the Catholic Church was out of the question. So we planned for a small, quiet, unassuming ceremony. Before the wedding, however, I was home visiting Mom, and I decided to go to confession uh, at the parish where I had grown up. I went into the confessional where the older priest was hearing confessions, and I told him that I was about to marry outside of the church. Well, he lit into me. He read me the riot act. He chastised me for the pain that I was about to inflict on my family and how selfish could I be. And he said I had no choice but to call the whole thing off and never see this man again. I was dumbfounded. I came out of that confessional, and I didn't know what to do. I, I, I stood there. I thought, you know, he didn't even give me a penance to say. Can I, can I still say a couple Our Fathers and some Hail Marys and be good to go? I was appalled, not, not only at what he had said to me, but the manner in which he had said it. He was so vehement. He had spoken to me in a way that not even my parents had ever spoken to me. So I was at a loss as to what to do. I stood there for a while, and then I, I looked up, and that's when everything changed. I saw that across the church, the younger priest was also hearing confessions. <laughs> S 
suddenly it dawned on me, I should get a second opinion. (laughs) So I marched over to the other side of the church. The light was green. I marched into the confessional, knelt down. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. My last confession was about two minutes ago. (laughs) And I proceeded to tell him the same story that I had told the other priest. I finished, there was a slight pause, and then very softly came the words, first of all, love is never wrong. And I thought, hallelujah, (laughs) my sentiments exactly. But he went on to say that I was about to make a very serious decision and that he wanted to discuss it with me outside the confessional. So a couple days later, I went to see him at his office. We sat down, had a very polite discussion about uh, love and marriage. He talked about how Christ's love is the foundation of marriage, everything that I agreed with. Uh, I guess what I thought, what I had hoped for, was that he would give me a way that I could reconcile Uh, the marriage that I was about to enter into with my Catholic faith, but he couldn't. So in the end, neither priest dissuaded me from going ahead with the wedding. And a few days later, uh, this now lapsed Catholic was married to a lapsed Presbyterian by a Baptist minister in a Lutheran church. (laughs) So I figure with all those religions being kind of represented, uh, our ceremony was actually more universal and inclusive. Um, I was happy that my mother and my brother attended the ceremony, even though they didn't agree with my choice of husband, they were there to support me. And that's really the bigger thing. Uh, The years following my wedding, uh, I would accompany mom to church whenever I was home visiting her, but I never took communion. And I never went back to confession after that fateful day where I had the two confessions back to back. I am grateful, however, that my parents gave me a solid Uh, upbringing in the Catholic Church Um, because such a strong faith-based tradition served me well. By the time I was 24 years of age, I had lost my older brother, my father, and my sister. And it was my Catholic faith that got me through all those tragedies. I'd like to think that in the years since my marriage, I've uh, been able to explore other religions, other belief systems, uh, and other philosophies. Um, And that my way of thinking about religion, or more specifically spirituality, has become more inclusive. Uh, Mom, remained a a devout Catholic throughout her life. Uh, And so, of course, she worried over my eternal salvation. But even she had an open mind and a big heart. 
and she ultimately believed in uh, the golden rule. I remember I was home visiting once, and I saw that she had framed a greeting card that I had sent her. The greeting card was a quote of the Dalai Lama, and Mom here had it framed and hung on her wall along with the, the crucifix. The quote read simply, my true religion is kindness. Isn't that what it's all about? Thank you. Thank you, Kate, and thanks to all of tonight's really amazing storytellers. Let's thank you. True Tales Live will be back here on Tuesday, March 27th, with the theme of overcoming. We still have space available for this coming show and I believe all the rest of our 2018 shows. So if you are interested in participating, please send us an email at truetaleslive1, like the number, at gmail.com. If you are interested in telling a story, but maybe you're a little nervous or unsure of yourself or you simply want help with your piece, we have monthly storytelling workshops held here at PPM-TV, 280 Marcy Street in Portsmouth, on the first Tuesday of most months from 7.30 to 9 p.m. Um, they're free and open to everyone, and the next one is March 6. You can watch us on Comcast Channel 98 on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m., and Saturdays at 1 p.m. And anytime is video on demand on YouTube, you just search for PPM TV True Tales Live and you will find us. Uh, let's give some thanks to some of those who make this show possible John Lovering, Pat Spaulding, <laughs> Steve Koval, David Frainer. Yeah, let's keep clapping. Bill Humphreys and Chad Cordner. I'm Amy Antonucci. And <laughs> oh, lots of clapping tonight. Great clappers. And until our next True Tales Live show, on behalf of all of us here, thank you so much for listening. And stay tuned for the interview that David Frainer will be doing with Kate.